Parashat Shmot. We begin a new Sefer. I'm telling you, I give you a shear in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, every day this week. We even cover the little bit that there is to say that I know about Parashat Shmot from years of Pesach and otherwise. Um, the recipe for how anti-Semitism begins is in this week's Parsha. Uh, the episode of how exile begins is in this week's Parsha. The, the seeds of Geula is in this week's Parsha. Um, how you deal with tyrants in this week's Parsha. But, but I want to pick a, a particular issue. Okay? So, Tzvika Gringold. Some of you may not have heard this name. Srika Gringold was, I believe, 21 years old. And um, he had been invited to do Kursman Paim. Kursman Paim is company commander's course. And, you know, he was in the regular army. That's a serious deal. You've usually been in the army for four or five years. Um, you've, uh, you've been a lieutenant. You've had a number of other roles. Katsin Mifsaim, operations officer, deputy company commander, etc. And then they invite you. And this is a serious thing. It's also a serious time commitment. So he was given two weeks off. And he went back to his kibbutz, kibbutz Lochamea Gitaot, um, which is up near Haifa. It's one of two kibbutzim that have incredible um, uh, memorials and museums to the Holocaust. It was built by survivors of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and a few other ghettos. Um, and if you've never been there, I would, I would highly urge you it's, it's a fantastic place to go. Actually, before Pesach is a great time to go there because it's beautiful by that time of year. We'll be done with Hezbollah by that time of year. It'll be all good. Anyway, he goes back to his kibbutz. Um, and it's the afternoon of October 6th. And uh, something's up. And he realizes that uh, things are pretty bad. So he gets in his car and he drives to... The Golan. October 6th, not October 7th. October 6th, 1973. And when he gets up to the Golan, he realizes that things are really bad. 2,000 tanks across the border. There are barely 125 tanks on the line. By the time he gets up there, half of Meash Shmoni Vishmona is gone, destroyed. He gets to Nafach, to the base in the Golan that's basically trying to control everything and it's a nightmare. He actually gets there two hours before the Syrians break through the front gates, and that's a story in and of itself. And um, he needs to do something. Nobody's organized. The, the units aren't being organized. They don't have a system of Yamachim yet. They haven't had a surprise attack like this. Right? Israel's never been surprised like this. In 1948, we went to war. 1956, we decided to drop into the Sinai and go to war. 1967, we launched the war. All of a sudden, we're caught with our pants down. Now, Nafakh uh, has a certain number of tanks, so he starts gathering crew members. You're a driver, you're a loader. Can you command a tank? Come with me. You come with me. And he gets together three tank crews, and they put together a machlaka. And they decide on a frequency. He can't get everybody to give him the proper frequencies. They just pick one. And they start working on frequency, and he lets the radio room know what frequency they're going to be on until they're ready to get back on the, on the frequency of Meash Morning Morning. Because that's a, that's a brigade frequency. It's, it's overrun. There's, you can't even get a word in. And they head out. And they encounter almost immediately hundreds of Syrian tanks. Now it's nighttime. So they begin to dart in and out of the Syrian lines. There's no lines. They're everywhere. And he fires from one position, takes out a tank, fires from another position, takes out a tank. 
At a certain point in the evening, his tank is hit from close range, right? And it's burning. So he jumps off his tank, runs to a second tank, jumps up, tells the commander to go manage his tank, and continues fighting. Towards dawn, his tank is hit and explodes, and he's thrown off the tank. He's, he's burnt, he's injured, he's a little bit in shock, but he doesn't stop, and he jumps on third tank. It's his whole And he continues fighting for the better part of 20 hours. It is estimated that over the course of those 20 hours, he takes out, single-handedly with his crew, 18 Syrian tanks. Not only that, um, the Syrians, and we know this because later they capture, you know, sort of intelligence papers, and they know what the Syrians were thought. They, they, you know, they, they, they analyze the radio waves later on when the dust has settled and the Yom Kippur is over, and they start to do, uh, you know, a rehash of what went wrong. The Syrians were convinced they were fighting a full brigade. They had no idea it was one tank. He did such a successful job <clears throat> that he fooled his own men. Yitzchak ben Shoam, who would be killed later that night, was the commander of Meshwanimashwan. He was a brigade commander. He's a full bird colonel. He was convinced he was dealing with a full company of tanks. And, and he gives them orders. He sends them around in an end run to take out the flank of the Syrian tanks because he's convinced that he's sending a company of tanks. He has no idea that he's sending one tank. When the war is over, he will receive Ituraos and, and Salash will get the highest awards that you can get for, for battlefield bravery. And he will continue his army service and eventually he'll go back to his kibbutz and live a quiet life. Svika Glingold. Unbelievable. Sometimes a person has a moment when they're called to greatness. Many people miss such moments. They don't understand that they're being called. And this week, probably more than any other moment in Jewish history, is such a moment. He is 79 years old. He's done. He was a prince of Egypt. He, he, he does what you wouldn't expect a prince of Egypt to do. Right? How does he even know they're his brothers? Well, presumably he's brought up, right? There's all sorts of midrashim. There's a miracle. Bat Paro can't nurse. She can't find any Egyptian to nurse. No Egyptian who goes near Moshe will be able to nurse. Like, you know, Chazal go crazy. It's on steroids. So Miriam is there because she's watching over him and she suggests, you know, I mean, Bat Paro isn't stupid. She understands this is a Jewish baby. So they call for a nursemaid. And of course, the nursemaid, according to Chazal, is Yocheved. Presumably, if she's nursing him, and she and her daughter Miriam, his older sister, are somehow involved in his life, he knows he's Jewish. I don't know when he knows he's Jewish. You don't tell a four-year-old he's Jewish because he'll speak and they'll kill him. But at some point he understands that he's Jewish. Maybe he just intuits, because he's Moshe Rabbeinu, that these are his brothers. And we all know the story. He goes out, he kills an Egyptian, he stops two Jews from fighting. Next thing he knows, they're trying to kill him and he has to run away. He did his bit and he runs away. Now what he's doing during the 40 years that he's left Egypt behind is the subject of Midrashim because the Torah doesn't tell us. We know that he marries Tzipara. We know that he clearly has a presence because he marries the daughter of a Kohen Midian, a leader in Midian. And the stories in the Midrashim about Yitro themselves are legendary, but we're not going to go there right now. And he's living a good life. He's a shepherd. You know, I don't know, I hope this year we'll get to do this with you, but in past years, 
you know, we find a day and we take the guy's shepherding. There's a lot to learn from this experience. It's amazing, right? Fun, yeah? And uh, you don't really get to see this when you're 60, 70 guys driving sheep. But when you're alone with a flock, and I had many occasions to, to, to meet up with Arab shepherds, you know, both in the army and in Gush Etzion, there's something very chill. You go out to a hill, the sheep are grazing, you sit under your tree, and you shtabach shemo. Right? And that's Moshe's life. He's a shepherd. And one day, he's walking out in the desert, and he sees a bush. It's just a bush. And he notices that the bush is burning. Ever think about this? This is an enormous moment. This is the moment that Hashem is going to introduce Hashem's self to Moshe Rabbeinu. Presumably, Moshe Rabbeinu has been working on something. You don't just end up Moshe Rabbeinu. Like, obviously, for 40 years, he's been developing his relationship with Hashem. And Hashem is ready. He's ready. So Hashem burns a bush that won't burn. And Moshe Rabbeinu goes to see the bush. This is the moment Hashem introduces himself to Moshe Rabbeinu. There will never be another moment like this. This moment will change history. Not just Jewish history, history. It will lead to Yitzhak Mitzrayim, which will lead to Matan Torah, which will lead to the Jewish nation in Israel, which will give birth eventually to Christianity, Islam, I mean, half the world. A bush? That's how you start all this? To burn a bush? Really? Some of you may remember, we talked about this. We were walking in the river, remember? Middle of the night. You have to be looking to see a burning bush. Right? You have to understand that leadership is about being consumed by something. But while you're being consumed by something and you see that there's something so big for you to do, make sure you remain a bush. Don't get so full of yourself. Okay. And then begins one of the most incredible dialogues in Jewish history. Moshe Rabbeinu says, Lech red mitzrayma. Time to go to Egypt. And Moshe starts to argue with God. They have a debate. That's unbelievable. Moshe Rabbeinu. Kosh Baruch tells you to go to Mitzrayim. You go. What's this argument? And every time Hashem tells him to go, Moshe comes up with another debate. Until finally, and this isn't the time to go through, it's a, it's a week-long debate according to Chazal. Like later Moshe is going to have 40 days without food and water. This is a practice for a week, okay. And finally, Moshe Rabbeinu says, right, why are you sending me down? I can't talk properly. Now, you have to try to imagine this moment. Hashem says, you're going to Egypt. And Moshe says, I can't talk properly. What's the matter with you? Now, if that person stood up in front of the Jewish people in a movie, we'd think it was Monty Python. But this is Moshe Rabbeinu. Forget about how he becomes, you know, sort of kvad peh. Difficult speaking, the Medrash, Chazal, you know, Rav Soloveitchik has an incredible idea. He says, Moshe was so beyond, the words couldn't catch up with everything he was saying and thinking, but he can't speak properly. So he says, why would you send me when I can't speak properly? And Hashem, that's such a ridiculous argument. Who, who, who gives people the ability to speak? Who makes somebody lame or blind or, or, or deaf? 
I made you that way. I can fix it. What's this debate? And now everything changes. And now go. And I will tell you what to say. We're done, right? No. So Moshe says, Send with whom you normally send. Send anyway, you don't need to send me. Now, what is that second argument? There are a lot of different ways to look at that Pasuk. One way to look at that Pasuk is, Moshe has a very good point. Moshe says, listen, you're saying you're God. You can do anything. Then you don't need me. Anybody could get the Jews out of Egypt because it's really you. So why do you need me? Moshe is experiencing a moment of pure emunah. I know that this isn't about me. He's an anav, right? Right? There was never a person like Moshe. He has a level of humility. He knows it's nothing to do with him. And he says to Tokus Prokhus, he says, I don't understand. Like, there's nothing to do with me. You don't need me. I come to a guy and I say, listen, we need you, because if you don't clean the kitchen, it's not going to get cleaned. If you really have a muna, you should say, well, let's just be clear. Like, if the kitchen is meant to be cleaned, it'll be clean. I may have the opportunity to do a mitzvah, but you can't say the kitchen, not, the kitchen will be cleaned or won't be cleaned. It's nothing to do with me. If a curse Baruch wants the kitchen to be cleaned, it'll be cleaned. You can't argue with that. And you know what happens here? Anybody know what happens now? This is unbelievable. What happens now? That's a pretty good argument, right? Can't argue with that. I'm basically saying to Hashem, you're Hashem. Hashem just said, I'm Hashem. I can do it all. I can fix the blind. He says, well then, what do you need me for? Now Hashem gets annoyed. Now usually when you're debating someone, they get annoyed, it's because they don't really have a good answer. Right? Okay? You know, you're talking to the guy, and he says, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, until you stop building the settlements, the PLO will never stop fighting. He said, but the PLO was created in 1964, before we had Yudav Shamron. And then he gets annoyed. Why does he get annoyed? Because there's no answer to that question. Okay. So, Vayichar Af Hashem. So Hashem gets mad. Aaron Alevi is, is going to help you. I don't need you to speak. He'll speak for you. And, and one opinion is that Moshe is saying, I feel uncomfortable that you're going to send me and I'm going to, I've been away from Egypt for 40 years. He's been down there suffering with the Jewish people. He's a Navi. He should be the Navi. In other words, he doesn't want to hurt his brother, which is amazing. That he's willing to give up being the goel of all of Am Yisrael, bringing Torah to the world, because it's not worth it to him all that if he's going to hurt his brother. And since Hashem can decide any, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. By the way, here's an interesting question: Moshe Rabbeinu is having a delay. He's he's, he's debating with a Baruch for a week, right? So if he's debating for a Baruch for a week, he's pushing off the geulah of the Jewish people for a week. Babies are being thrown in the Nile. The Jewish people is redeemed. The world is without Torah for an additional seven days because Moshe Rabbeinu is arguing the Kosh Baruch Hu. How could you do that? What is the obvious answer to this question? Everybody understand the question? You understand the question? You don't understand the question? Moshe Rabbeinu is arguing with God. 
I can't go because of this, I can't go because of that. According to Chazal, it takes seven days. So that means that the redemption is being delayed for seven days. Jewish babies being thrown in the Nile. The Torah only gets given 49 days after they get out of Egypt. So the Torah is given seven days later. Because Moshe Rabbeinu is arguing, how can he do that? What's the answer? It's for the greater good. Nope, I don't think that's the answer. How do you know if it's for the greater good? The Torah needs to be given, yeah? The Torah will be given when the Torah is meant to be given. The Gula, right? Moshe understands that there is a moment that Jews are going to get out of Egypt. And that moment is meant to be. And it has nothing to do with when he goes, how he goes, whether he goes, and whether he argues. It's meant to be. That's not what the arguing is about. You don't change God's mind. You don't change God's plan. You go to change yourself. So that's not a problem. Okay. Shlach nabi shlach. Anybody could go. You don't need me. And now, finally, we're done. You're going to go down. Aaron will see you. This is the only instance in the entire Torah that it says somebody will actually be happy. There is a moment where it describes somebody should be happy. Does anybody know where that is? Where's the first time I find the concept of somebody being Sameach? Nope, that's much later. That's, right, that's an Amor. No? Is it Aaron where, uh, when he gives, like, the first four months? Nope. <laughs> because that's later. This is, this is, this is Shmot. What's earlier? It's a good guess, though. No, unbelievable. I'm going to leave you to think about this, but the first time I find the, con- yeah? Yaakov, when he figures out Yosef's alive? Nope. That would be great, but nope. <laughs> that should be there, right? Then I could give a great cheer, but nope. Lovan says to Yaakov, I'm upset that you left in the middle of the night because I would have sent you away, you know, with Simcha. And Yaakov says, no, thank you. Lovin is saying, that's what Simcha is about. Yaakov is saying, that's not what Simcha is about. That's the first time you find the concept of somebody being Sameach, except it doesn't happen. This is the first time you find the concept of somebody being Sameach that does happen. How do I know it does happen? Because Hashem says it's going to happen. So then it happens. Only Hashem could know what somebody's going to feel in his mind, that he's going to think and be happy. In other words, Aaron will know that there's a purpose to all this time that Moshe was gone, and he'll see Moshe coming, and he'll suddenly realize the plan is about to unfold. Geula is coming. That's what Simcha is. Okay. How come now, all of a sudden, everything changes? And Bemet, Moshe goes down. Okay. There is, by the way, an interesting question, which I'm not going to answer. I don't think we'll have time tonight. But it's interesting, right? After all this, take the mater with you. Why we need the mater is an interesting discussion. And that's it. We're done with the snare. So what happens now, Moshe? No? Yeah, no, he doesn't. This is unbelievable. Moshe goes back to Yitro. And he says to Yitro, I'd like to go to my brothers in Egypt. I think they need my help. I want to see if they're still living. He gets permission from his father-in-law. Now, putting aside that those of you who contemplate one day getting married, this is a very smart move. Remember this move. This is a good move. You're getting good with the father-in-law, you're good with the wife, life is good. What is this doing here? How does Moshe ask Yitro? Hashem told him, go. Hashem Moshe. And now Hashem comes to Moshe again. Paratal Paskitet. Bemidyan in Midyan. Leich Shuv Mitzrayim ki metu kol anashim ha-mavakshim et ha-shecha. 
I'm telling you, you can go. The people who are trying to kill you, Dutton and Avir, whatever, they're dead. They're not dead, but they're poor. Fine, we'll go there another time. And then, he takes, he gets on the donkey, the donkey of Mashiach, whatever, and he goes. So that's crazy. Why does Moshe go back to Yitro? But getting back to our question, what is this argument that Moshe has with HaKadosh Baruch and, and why is it that all of a sudden, now, everything changes, Moshe leaves, goes to Yitro, gets the family, and goes down? What, what changed in the argument? Okay? Um, and how is Moshe arguing with, with, with Hashem at the Sinai to begin with? Now, there is an interesting detail that was once pointed out uh, in a Torah that I read from Ravriskin. I read Ravriskin. Um, who points out a very interesting detail. Ask me, there's a word in this Pasuk that doesn't seem right. I'm going to read it once, see if you pick up on it. You ready? It's only a certain number of words, so if enough people guess, you'll get it, but okay. Okay. <laughs> Which word is strange? Halevi. Good. Very good. What could you have called out? First of all, just call him Aaron. Second of all, why do you have to call him a lady? He's from the tribe of Levi. Yeah, you're also from the tribe of Levi. What does that mean? And if you're already going to give him a title, what should you call him? A Kohen. He's a Kohen. Why is he called a lady? Unbelievable Rashi. Unbelievable Rashi. Rashi loves the Midrashim that kind of say, in this moment, the world changed. Listen to this Rashi. This is unbelievable. Rashi says like this. Hello, He should have been the Levi. He wasn't supposed to be a Kohen. You were supposed to be the Kohen. The Kohen Gadol. By the way, Moshe was the first Kohen Gadol. Because he puts together and takes apart the Mishkan for seven days before transferring it to Aaron on the eighth day, the Shmoni Mimilun. But he's not the Kohen Gadol. Me'ata from now, lo yiyekein, elahu yiyot kohen ve'ata alevi. Shenemaru Moshei Shalohim banav yikru al shevet levi. In this moment, you lost the Kohen. What's that about? Why is Aaron called a levi? Why does Moshe lose the Kohen here? Why does that do then? What is this story here? Right? Now, Moshe says, Shlach na be'yad asher tishlach. He basically says, you could send anyone. You don't need to send me. Right? Hashem says, you should go. Moshe says, but you don't need me to go. Because anybody could go. Who's right? Who's right? Moshe. You can't argue with him. He's beating Hashem at his own game. He's saying, you tell me, Amuna, it all could be. So if it all could be, you don't need me. If I come to you after Shir and Amuna, and I say, listen, if you don't clean up the base minish, it's going to be a pigsty tomorrow. You should say to me, well, that's not true. The base minish will either be clean or won't clean. If I don't clean it, somebody else will clean it. If it's meant to be cleaned. And if it's not meant to be cleaned, that's a very dangerous point, but it happens to be correct. But then Hashem answers him, right? Hashem says, Misam Pele Adam, right? Who, who, who made you a stutterer? Moshe Rabbeinu says, but I'm a stutterer. In the first argument, he says, anybody could do it. Moshe's right. But now Moshe says, but I'm a stutterer. And Moshe says, well, who made you a stutterer? Like, what does that have to do with anything? 
If I want, you're telling me that anybody could do it. Well, I'm telling you, therefore, that a stutterer could do it. So who's right now? Because Baruch was right, right? He's right. What's the difference that you're stuttering? Hashem is calling me to play basketball on the Olympic team. I say, yeah, but I only have one leg. So Hashem says, if I want a one-legged player to be on the Olympic team, he'll be on the Olympic team. What's the big deal? Say, so, oh yeah, somebody forgot to tell me that you can't play basketball with two legs. What's the difference? So what's this all doing here? And why does Hashem get angry? And then, why then does Moshe acquiesce? So I want to share with you a deep idea. Because I think that this entire story is all about leadership. It's all about leadership. Rashi says, now you won't be Kohen. Because maybe that's what Moshe's issue is. Many years ago, I heard from Eric Riverskin, Moshe Rabbeinu was the epitome of Emuna. But Emuna is a very dangerous topic. Because a person can have too much emuna. If you have too much emuna, you may be right, but you won't live the right life. Because you're not here for Hashem to do all the work. That's Hashem's job. A person can have too much faith. When Moshe Rabbeinu says anyone can do this, Hashem is basically saying you're right. And that's the problem. The Kohen Kohen Gadol, is basically a role that is all about faith and ritual. And if the Kohen Gadol thinks that all you need is faith, then the danger is that he teaches the people that they don't need to do anything. And that's not good. That person who's consumed with Emunah should not be the Kohen Gadol. Because the Kohen Gadol has to realize that the people still have to do their bit. They don't have to do their bit because that, that's what makes it happen. They have to do their bit because they need to do their bit. Don't make the mistake. When somebody... So there's a family. I think I mentioned them this week. And they were murdered on October 7th. But the terrorists left their twin babies in a crib for 14 hours. For 14 hours. They left these babies in a crib. They didn't give them food. They didn't give them water. They didn't even cover them properly. They didn't clean them. They were lying in their own waste. And they started to cry and to scream. And they were crying so much that people heard them. And later, when they were finally rescued, they were rescued by a unit of Golani, Tomer Greenberg, who was later killed in Aza. That's a whole story in and of itself. He will never live to see these twins grow up. He managed to call them and said that after the war, he, he wants to meet them and see them and... You can imagine they're thinking one day he'll be at their bar mitzvah and he won't be. Okay. And the terrorists left them in the crib so that people would hear the cries because we're Rachmanim and would come in and would hear them and people got killed because of this. But those two babies were either meant to live or they were meant to die. And I know they were meant to live. How? Because they did. Why do you have to do anything? Don't make the mistake of thinking that those twins lived because that Golani unit came in the house. Those twins lived because Hashem had decided long ago that they were going to enter the house. Hashem chose that Golani unit to be the vehicle for fulfilling His will. If they wouldn't have gone in, somebody else would have gone in. But His will would be fulfilled. There's a Gemara that says, Eef below below Bosa below Bursaki. 
You can't have a world without perfumery and the tanneries. Ashrei me, praised and blessed is he who gets to work in the perfumery. And Nebuch, the person, cursed is he who has to work in a tannery is like a place where you're cutting animal hides, disgusting. It stinks and you, you stink. And nobody wants to be near you because you stink. In other words, what's going to happen is going to happen. But you don't have to be the one who makes that happen. Or you could be the one who makes that happen. Right? This is the famous Pasuk in Pasha Kitete. It says that you know, when, it, when you build a ma'akeh, when you build a, there's a mitzvah to build a, a, a barrier on your roof that nobody should fall off. And the Pasuk there says, right, Velo you damim al there shouldn't be blood on your house when the faller falls in the house. So all the Mepharshim, we've talked about this before, all the Mepharshim say, well, what does that mean? It should say nobody will fall. It's not what it says. If somebody falls off the house, it's because they were going to fall off the house. They don't have to fall off your house. The fact that you don't build a makeh is the reason. You, the mistakes you make in your life, that's what causes you to be the vehicle for whatever else happens in your life. And that's our ability to choose differently. A Jewish leader cannot say that it all depends on God. That's not what leadership is about. That's not, that's not what Jewish leadership is about. A Jewish leader has to say, we know that it all depends on God, but that's not our job. When we're done, we can look back and realize it's all God. Right now, it's all on us. It's all on us. We're living in a time, there are at least 4,000 people with black hats on their heads and long kapates who, who sit and learn all day and decide, we're in a Muhammad's mitzvah. We can no longer just sit and learn. We're going to stop our learning. And many of them didn't even ask their rabbin. They understood this is such a moment. And they went to the draft of, do you know what it is for a person studying in the mirror with a wife and children to get up and go to the Israeli draft board and say, draft me? That's unbelievable. That's not like Benny Friedman doing. What's the big deal? I grew up in a Tzioni house. I went to a Hezdi Yishu. That's unbelievable. That's like, you know, will my children ever get a shidduch? Will anybody talk to me? Will my neighbors look at me the same way? But sometimes you have to do, you have to stand up and be called. That's ridiculous. Akushpacha runs the world. The, 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 the war will be won, the war will be lost. It's already planned. That's not our job. Our job is we don't do these things to change the outcome. We do these things because we're meant to be partners with Hashem. We're supposed to be vehicles for fulfilling what's on Hashem. And that's what you have to figure out. And you can't say that it's Hashem's will until you've done what you need to do. So Moshe loses the, kah- the kahuna because the kahuna is all about ritual. It's all about emuna. He doesn't value ishtadlus enough. And what happens next is Moshe Rabbeinu goes down and he sees that it doesn't happen. He has to work for a long time. And the Jewish people with him until they're finally ready to get out of Mitzrayim. You know, people say that October 7th is the single most horrific day since the Holocaust. And in the period after, you know, sort of the time of, the, of October 7th, you heard this a lot that first week, comparing it to the Holocaust. And then saner voices prevailed, in my opinion, and were able to say, okay, this is not the Holocaust. This is one afternoon of the Holocaust. Because on October 8th, there are Israeli forces, and they're fighting terrorists, and they're pushing them back into Gaza, capturing them. There were over 1,500 terrorists that were either killed or captured in that week. It's unbelievable. And then we start a war. We spend two weeks training, getting ready, and then we go into Aza. And for two months, we've been fighting in Aza. We're no longer, and I saw an article 
And the article wrote, this is not the Holocaust because we're not going like sheep to the slaughter anymore. And I'm reading this article and something's rubbing me the wrong way. And I remembered an article, I found it, that uh, I got once many years ago from Rav Milston, who's the Rosh Hashiva of Midrash Narova, who quoted his rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak Bernstein, and we're almost done. And he took great offense at the notion of a Jew in the Holocaust going like a sheep to the slaughter and that this somehow, you know, um, what was her name? Um, Hannah Arendt. Hannah Arendt wrote a famous book um, about the Eichmann trial. And in the, in the beginning of the book, she describes the prosecutor who was interviewing a survivor. The survivors really never spoke before the Eichmann trial in the early 60s, 61, 62. And that's when it opened up the box and survivors started to talk. So they were interviewing them at the court. They were giving testimony. And Hannah Arendt, in the book, writes about how the prosecutor is saying to the, the, the survivor, but didn't you fight back? Like, how could you go like sheep to the slaughter? There were 6,000 of you in the Umstagplatz. There were barely 50 SS guards. They didn't have enough bullets for all of you. And they kept saying this again and again. And there was this almost shame that Israelis had that we like Jews went like sheep to the slaughter. He stopped to think about that. Really? The Eish Kodesh who taught Torah knowing that every word of Torah could get him killed? He went like sheep to the slaughter? When a Jew walks into the gas chambers and he's singing on imamin, and he's basically saying, you may be winning this battle, but I refuse to give up my emunah. That's not fighting. That's a different type of fighting. That's not sheep to the slaughter. We're in a battle. David goes to do battle with Goliath. And Eliyahu Kitov in his book Sefer Atodah says, this is not just a boy fighting a man. This is two, two different cultures at war with each other. And David Melech says, might does not make right. I will show you this. Because I fight for the Lord of hosts. When you sit and learn Torah, make no mistake about it, you are contributing something to this battle that is the ultimate enemy of Hamas. If we beat Hamas because we're a strong army, then they're right. Might makes right. We're just mightier than them. The fact that we sit and learn Torah, the fact that we can be Sameach, you know, I thought about this for a lot. At the beginning, I was really troubled by the fact that we were dancing with Sifrei Torah in this space, Menorah, while people were being slaughtered in Aza. And I remember thinking to myself, how could we be so, how could we not know? How could we not feel? How could we not sit down on the floor, right? Which you're not allowed to do, by the way, in Yantav. And then I thought about it afterwards, not that I planned it this way, that's exactly the response to them. Exactly. You come to us with your, your Molotov cocktails and your RPGs, and we come to you with Torah. This, the, the, this is our battle. And I'm not saying, there's a Melchemah, a Melchama, and there's a Melchemah's Mitzvah. And I think that every, every able-bodied person has to struggle with this question. It, it, it's a decision you have to make. And I, I, I don't think we should judge each other. I certainly don't judge you. You didn't grow up in Israel. It's not part of your, your, your mentality, and that's fine. And I don't know what the best way is to, for you to serve. Maybe somebody here will go back to the university, and you'll spend four years there. And then Nebuch, you'll get stuck in Galut, and you'll do a master's and a PhD, and then you'll invent a device which will save hundreds of thousands of lives here in Israel. How do I know? I have no idea. I know that we have to struggle with this question. We have to, on the one hand, say, Shlach Shem runs the world. And on the other hand, Like, everybody has a job to do. You don't get to be the Kohen and just hide in the base of Mikdash. 
we have, we have a difference to make. And I'll finish off with the story of Adam Chernikov. Adam Chernikov was the head of the Judenrat in the Warsaw Ghetto. I want you to understand how they started the Judenrat in the Warsaw Ghetto. The same way they started it in Lodz. They collected a group of uh, leaders of the Jewish community. They did their research. They knew who the leaders were. They came to their homes. They brought them to you know, the city council. They sat them at a table and they said, you're going to be the Jewish committee. And the first thing you're going to do is make up a list and give us 10,000 names so that we can resettle them in labor camps in the East. Now, most of the leaders were already starting to understand what that meant. So somebody speaks up, and we don't have all the minutes of this, but there are some testimonies, right? This also happened in Lodge. Somebody speaks up and says, I'm not doing that. SS officer says, no, no problem. You don't have to be in the run. He takes a pistol and blows his head off. And in other words, and he blows his head off. And the third person isn't sure. And that's how you get a Judenrat. And so you have a Jewish committee. And they have to give names. And they have to tell people that they're resettling into a ghetto. And they have to tell people that you're going to live in a room, you know, that's the size of one of your dorm rooms. Only there's going to be 40 of you in there. And on and on. And finally, one day, the Nazis come to Adam Chernikov and they say to him, you have to give us 10,000 children. And he comes home that day, I says, I can't do this. I can't do this. If they will do that, that's obviously not for labor. Then there's no point to this Judenrat. And so he takes a poison pill and he writes a note and he leaves the note. And they find him dead on his desk. And he says, maybe this act of suicide will we'll stir something in the world and they will understand that something has to change. And he urges people not to surrender to the Nazis. Fight. Fight by committing suicide. Fight by however it is. Now, I don't judge a person. I'm not talking about halacha here. That was his form of rebellion. We each have to find our role and our path and what it is Hashem is calling us to do. And it's not because, because, Hashem, because we're going to change the outcome. Because Hashem has decided what the outcome is. It's because we're going to change ourselves. And when we change ourselves, we change the world. And when the world is better, then everything will get better. Because that's what Hashem has planned. So that's just the beginning of the journey into Shemot and Va'era and Bo and B'Shalach. And I'm looking forward to continuing the journey with you. I wish everyone an awesome Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom.